be a little bit more transformed into his image. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys, I'm going to read for a minute. This takes about two and a half or three minutes, so you can close your eyes, you can sit back, whatever you like. This is from the Declaration of Independence, and I'm just using it as an introduction to talk about leadership in general, but listen to this from the founders of the United States. They wrote, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Prudence indeed will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes, and accordingly all experience has shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Such has been the patient sufferance of these colonies, and such is now the necessity which constrains them to alter their former systems of government. The history of the present King of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states, to prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world. And what follows there are 27 specific examples of King George's despotism. So if you, uh, when we think of the, the War of Independence, sometimes we think this fomented quickly, and, and in fact it didn't. This was years in the making, and they were really remarkably patient as they lived through one form of despotism after another. So the country sought independence from Great Britain because King George III's leadership over the American colonies had declined to what they termed despotism and tyranny. A despot, some of this, by the way, is on your study sheet. A despot is a ruler or other person who holds absolute power, typically exercising it in a cruel or oppressive manner, and a tyrant, very similar, a person exercising power or control in a cruel, unreasonable, or arbitrary way. Now, clearly, the colonists had been quite patient. In fact, it's a great history lesson, if nothing else. If you just read the Declaration of Independence again or the Bill of Rights, it's hugely helpful about how the country was set up, why and how it was founded. But there was a limit to the abuse that they understood they were called to tolerate. And, you know, this is a challenge, by the way, just theologically and philosophically. You know, how do you justify rebellion? How do you justify, for Christians, overthrowing a particular government? One of the final straws for the church, so those in the church specifically, 
was the Stamp Act. And we typically think of the Stamp Act as taxation, but those in the church understood this. The king required that every official document of any local church have the king's stamp on it. And they understood that this act, in fact, made the king of England the head of the church in the colonies. So until the Stamp Act, many of the pastors in colonial America were not for rebellion. It was the Stamp Act that threw them over that last bridge that said, the king has now claimed authority over Jesus Christ's church and that we simply can't be a part of. Ever since American independence, we've been a nation particularly averse to despotism and tyranny, despots and tyrants, and those who think like them, live like them, rule like them, give leadership a bad name. Overbearing, self-serving, capricious leaders can have the effect of inciting negative, at least, inciting negative attitudes to leaders and leadership in general. And the national calls, the regional mandates targeted at COVID-19 restrictions have certainly tested the population's tolerance for infringed liberties, at least. And they've certainly also proven an irresistible temptation for politicians and bureaucrats to expand budgets and power to what I would determine would be tyrannical heights, much like King George. In the midst of government overreach in the name of public health, no single group appears to have been more consistently targeted for control than the church. And this is specifically true in California, and I would argue that Governor Newsom in California has done the same thing that King George did, which he has said, I am the head of the church in California. Because his mandates have effectively told the church, you, not, you may not meet indoors, which guys in California, if you remember a couple of weeks ago, it's triple digits every day. Do you think old people are going to be able to meet outdoors? Not only that, the outdoor requirements were so restrictive that churches effectively could not meet. It simply shut them down. He also said that churches could not sing. Christians could not sing in a church meeting. He told the church, you may not have communion. That's no different effectively than the governor saying, I am the head of the church. And that's why you're seeing a lot of rebellion in California against the governor. Grace Community Church in Los Angeles, North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, and Godspeak Calvary Chapel in Thousand Oaks. They're all in the legal process over meeting. Uh, pastors have already been found in contempt of court. Uh, some of them tens of thousands of dollars in uh, uh, payments due to city and county government, state government as well there in California. This kind of overreach in a democratic republic invites disrespect for authority. From another direction entirely, we've got riots, we've got Antifa, we've got the organization Black Lives Matters, which makes, which is clear, it's after a different form of government in the United States. From a different take, if you will, a different philosophical background, also pushing for a different form of government that many people find very, very uncomfortable. Churches across the country are trying to figure out what God's call to submit to authorities looks like in this new environment. So lots of people are troubled. But Lord, what, what, is, what does it look like to be a Christian in this time and the place? Civically, politically, as a Christian, what, what do we do with all this? All this raises issues about leadership and not just in the political realm. We're going to be in 1 Peter, and we're going to be looking at leadership in much narrower confines, the, the confines Peter does, which has to do with leadership in the house, the household, 
and then leadership also in the local church. But I bring this up because I think the whole concept of leadership and authority is being called into question because so much is going on culturally, socially, legally in our current climate that it does raise the question, what do we make of leadership? And specifically, Peter addresses that in narrow confines. I'll mention Kent's going to have a message on this in the future in November, I think, regarding submission to authority. I'll, I'll bring that up in a moment. But right now, we're just talking about in a culture and in a time when the, the thought of authority or leadership is either called into question or we're not sure what that looks like or what to make of it. Peter speaks very directly to that as far as leadership in the home and in the church. Kent already taught last month on God's mandates for men to be the primary leaders in families and in the church. Uh, these are not on your study sheet today, but Ephesians 5, Colossians 3 specifically talk about men leading in the home related to the church, 1 Timothy 2 and 3, Titus 1, similar there. We'll develop these a little bit more fully. But we take it, as a, take it for granted that in these arenas, men are called to exercise the primary leadership in the family and in the church. So we're going to be talking about that generally, broadly, but also specifically, this message is most directly uh, informing men that you are a husband or you will be a husband, you're the head of a household or you aspire to lead in the church, this would be specifically for you. And as we begin, husbands, do we see our home as our castle the way King George saw the American colonies? D does our wife, does she exist for my benefit, sort of in an unqualified way? Or as leaders in a local church, do we see brothers and sisters in the faith as therefore our personal benefit or, and profit? Or do we think God's called us to something higher than that? Uh, Kent, related to the submission issue, is going to be talking, in, it is in November, what does submission to authorities look like? So this is 1 Peter 2, uh, Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 are the key New Testament passages on Christians submitting to the authorities God has established. But what does that look like? How do we look at that? How do we define when do we submit? When do we not submit? And we'll be talking about that in November. This morning, we're looking at what Christ-like leadership looks like specifically in home and church. So if you have your Bible, this is 1 Peter 3. That's where we're going to start. And Peter's in this uh, context of submission and relationships and what those look like from chapter 2 on. When he gets to chapter 3, he starts addressing wives and husbands. In the first six verses there, 1 Peter 3, he starts by addressing wives. He says, subject to your husbands, even when they're not obedient to God's word, they'll see your respectful, pure conduct. Your adorning will be the hidden person of the heart, a gentle, quiet spirit. He gets down to verse 7 and he turns the table and he then speaks to husbands. And he says this, so leadership in the home for a husband, Peter says, looks like this. Likewise, husbands... Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. And we're going to pull this apart a phrase at a time. Uh, he says, first, uh, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. And understanding there just means with knowledge, that you have some estimation, you have some specific knowledge about 
women generally, but particularly about your own wife. You know your own wife. This implies a conscious effort, I would say, to study your wife, to be aware of what your wife is like, what her strengths and weaknesses are, where she's tempted, where you know she's good to go. But it has to do with, I know my wife. I know her strengths and weaknesses, her preferences. I can read the cues that she's tired or she needs this or something else would benefit her. But it's that I, it's, I've got a PhD, if you will, in the study of my wife. I'm leading my wife like someone who really knows her. I have a sense of what women are like. I have a very particular sense of what my wife is like. So my leadership of my wife requires knowledge, intimate knowledge, real and personal knowledge of who she is and what she's like. The second phrase there says that we lead wives showing honor. Uh, respect or esteem would be the words that would probably be most quickly come to mind on this. The Greek term, though, goes a little beyond that because it implies value. So this same term can be used for the cost of a thing. And the implication would be this. I know the value of my wife. I know the worth of my wife or the worthiness of my wife. Along that line, do I, do I ever praise my wife for what's praiseworthy, both to her or to others? I suspect I'm fairly typical in this. I tell Kathy, I think nice things about you all the time. I, I don't always say them. You know, I, I work at saying them, at praising my wife instead of just thinking how lovely or adept or whatever she is. I, I need to say that. It's also a great thing to say it publicly, that when we praise others, our wives or anyone else, praising others publicly or broadly is simply a good thing. It's a biblical concept. So when you read Proverbs 31, you've got a husband who's praising his wife broadly. He's broadcasting her value. It's written down. We've been reading about that woman ever since, right? His wife, because he was praising her. He was honoring her. He was singing her values. Uh, do we ask her opinion? Do we ask where she needs help? Well, sometimes you may simply know, but other times it's certainly worth asking. Guys, just courtesies, minor courtesies. We, we use a program for premarital, and, and the guy sharing his story on uh, he got out of the car. They're newly married. He gets out of the car to go to the store. And he's halfway to the store and he looks back and his wife's still sitting in the car. Well, in her house growing up, dad always got out and opened the door for his wife and his daughter. And she thought her husband would do the same. And he had no concept of such a thing. That's, and right, maybe that's just a thing of bygone era, I don't know. But the, just the courtesies, whether that's opening and closing doors or other things that you know communicate value or care or concern to her Certainly consideration in the use of time, you know, checking with our wife before we schedule weekends away or one thing or another, just being aware, I value my wife, she is valuable, and I'm careful about how I schedule my time or our time. It also says the weaker vessel, I'm living with my wife, understanding that she's weaker. There's a couple options on this if you read the journals. Uh, the the uh, physical strength being weaker seems to be it seems to be the clearest reading, and typically men are far stronger than women, and usually upper body strength alone. But also, 
just on a consistent uh, day in and day out, week in and week out level, men don't suffer some of the things that women do that at any time can make them feel not as well, sick, sickly, or weaker. With the thought that she's weaker, do we help her? Do we offer to help with things we know would be helpful for her, physically or otherwise? Guys, a huge thing, just this alone, do we pray for our wife? You know, if you did nothing more than just prayed for your wife, that would be huge. And plus, it tunes you to your wife and her needs. When you pray for someone, it softens our heart towards them. It tunes us toward them. Uh, rest and naps. You know, my wife needs naps. And the older I get, I find I appreciate naps too. Uh, but that just helps her keep going, right? She's somewhere in the middle of the day. She's got to go close her eyes. I used to think that was odd. But I really know that's just part of the deal. She needs that rest. She needs that little bit of a break. Or time off or time away, um, especially if your wife is raising small kids. Uh, Kathy used to say, to, uh, of girls that she loved, she said, I feel like they stick straws in me and they suck the life right out of me. <laughs> that if you're raising little kids, you know, there's a constant drain because their needs are constant. Even if they're just chatting with you, right? You got to pay attention. It's constant. They're drained. What, do, what can we do to help them? They're going to be drained. They're going to be run down. What is helping them in that, leading well in that look like? And also, one of the most important descriptions here of a wife is this. She is an heir with you of the grace of life. She's an heir with you of the grace of life. So this means a couple things. Your wife as a Christian is God's daughter. Your wife as a Christian is God's daughter. And your wife as a believer is a co-heir with Jesus Christ. So the value you assign your wife, if it doesn't take into account my wife is God's daughter, my wife is Christ's co-reigning loved person, then it's not high enough. And, and we can take our wives for granted in ways we shouldn't. You know, if you're a guy that you're, you're wanting to date someone else's daughter, and this looks different ways in different families, uh, but perhaps you're going to ask, ask her to marry. And so you talk to dad. There's a certain trepidation and care you take when you talk to her dad because you want him to give you permission or blessing. And you're aware he has a vested interest in that young lady. Well, that's the same sense that we should have as husbands toward wives, that she is God's daughter. So if you're having a, a, a disagreement with your wife, if things aren't great, no matter what else we think, we should not forget that the way I treat this person, this woman that I've married, I'm treating God's daughter this way. What does God my father think of the way I'm treating his daughter? She's not just my wife, she's God's daughter first. She's Christ, she's going to reign with Christ also. Her future, like yours, is glorious. If you could see your wife now as she will be in heaven, you might be tempted to bow down and worship. So, gals, when you go home, you can invite your husbands to bow down and worship <laughs> to your future glory. I don't know if it's been a while since I told this. Kathy would say, do you love me? You know, it's always, do you love me? 
and I just say, just short of idolatry, just short of idolatry. I'd worship you if I could. If you look also at the end of verse 7, so, so God says through Peter, this is the way you exercise leadership in your home towards your wife. It's with knowledge. You've studied her. It's with this sense of value. It's prayerfully. It's with the knowledge of who and what she is in the future, present and future. He says in verse 7, if you fail to treat my daughter as you should, or Christ's co-reigning heir with as you should now in this moment, God says that your prayers towards him will be affected negatively, adversely. You know, on one hand, uh, 1 Peter, I think it's chapter 4, quotes Psalm that says God's, God's ear is attentive to our cry. That's prayer. It, it's as if God's got a, uh, what, a megaphone or something. He's got something in his ear, so he's just waiting to listen to our prayer on one hand. This says... If you don't treat your wife well, God won't listen to you. You know, if you've got kids and one's beaten up on the other and the one doing the beating comes to you and asks for something, how likely are you to give it? Not very, because you've got an issue with Junior because he's doing something wrong to another one of your children that you love. That's the thought here. That men's prayers are hindered before God if we don't love and value our wives, Christ's co-heir, as we're called to. Our wife should be better, more Christ-like because of our thoughtful, prayerful, loving support and encouragement because we're exercising, this is exile leadership, it's Christ-like humility in leadership. She should be better because of that. As husbands, we can't make our wife anything. You know this as a husband and as a parent. Not one person can make another person's heart anything, right? We don't compel. We invite. We invite. You know, one of the things husbands can do is simply encourage your wife to have her own time with the Lord in Scripture and prayer. That's the most encouraging thing I do for myself. It's the most encouraging thing I've encouraged my wife and my daughters to do over the years. So we can't make our wives anything, but we can, we can love them and we can invite them into more life in Christ, into the person God means them to be. Guys, if, if you're a husband, a would-be husband, uh, look at the questions on your study sheet. Would our wife say we are understanding? Would our wife say we're supportive along the lines that Peter's talking about here? Are we helpful in her being successful with children or in the home, in her spheres of influence, service, work, employment. Husbands are leading, but we're leading wives redemptively in a Christ-like, loving, humble fashion. Do they feel that? Would they say that's what they're getting from us? If we've got sons, do, do sons we raise, do they know how to lovingly lead a wife because they've seen me lovingly lead their mother? And make no mistake, as parents, you, you set an agenda for your children, a level of expectation for them. Uh, people typically default to the paradigm they grew up with. And, you know, when you say he married someone just like his mother, guys don't say, I'm going to marry somebody like my mother. It's, it's a default. Or she married someone just like her dad. It's a default. We're wired with that from the home we grew up in. 
Do daughters in our homes, do they know what kind of a man to hold out for because they've seen me value their mother? And this is just huge. We used to warn our girls all the time. What kind of a man do you want to marry? If he's not kind, strike him off your list. He's not even a consideration. Because of the kind of call to submission and support you get in 1 Peter 2 and 3 to wives, to women. If my daughter married a man who was just like me, would that be a good thing? So as husbands, are we giving the role of husbands a bad name? Or do others know something of Christ-like leadership through our role in the home? So as a husband in the home towards my wife, am I embellishing the name of Christ and his kind of leadership, exile leadership, or am I diminishing it? Am I inviting disrespect of leadership or, lead, or husbands as leaders by the way I'm living and leading as a husband? Switching gears and going from the family, the nuclear family in the house to the family of God in the local church. A year ago, a year and change, February 2019, the Houston Chronicle broke a major investigative story. This thing had been going on for months as far as their investigation. I think it was a three-part series in their, their newspaper. And it was on the physical and sexual abuse in Baptist churches, most of them located throughout the southern and southeast United States. Now this is just from their investigation. 218 pastors and church staff, almost all men, not quite, but almost all men, were found to be abusive sexual predators. They could chronicle abuse back 20 years and change to 1998 with over 700 known victims. Now guys, think about this for just a second. 700 known victims, what do you think the real count on that would be? We just guess, right? Because if you read anything about abuse, many, many, many people who've been abused, they never say a word. They never tell anyone. Or if they breathe a word, it's often decades later when they're adults, or, just, or they were adults decades later anyway, they're ashamed, they're embarrassed, and nothing gets said. When, if you say there, there are 700 known victims, there's some kind of multiplier on that for the real number. That those were in churches. There were not only abusive leaders, but of course there were others in leadership who turned a blind eye. And guys, this has been biting Protestants in the backside for the last few years. You know, this all started with the Roman Catholic pedophile priest, right? And that's been going on for many years. But it's not just the Roman Catholic Church that's got a problem with this. It's evangelical Protestant churches as well. It's a betrayal of trust. It's an abuse of leadership instead of care. It's a failure to warn others of wolves in sheep's clothing. This has been going on in churches like ours. So with that as a backdrop, depending on what someone's experience has been or what we're aware of that's gone on or perhaps is going on in other churches, what is leadership in Jesus' church meant to look like? So closer to home, church family, what is that supposed to look like? As abusive priests, pastors, and staff give church leadership a bad name, what should we be looking for in our church leaders? And guys, you know, this is all voluntary. Uh, no one's constrained to be in any church on Sunday morning, right? We, we come into a church and we see if it appears to be a good fit for ourselves or for our family. What does the leadership, though, in that church look like? 1 Timothy 3 
and Titus 1 describe qualifications for those who would lead. So to these churches and to the folks Paul had designated to set up elders in churches, he said, hey, this is what their lives need to look like. Those were the qualifications of men just to consider them as leadership in a local church. Peter describes what their role in action and attitude looks like. So Peter's writing to elders who are serving as elders like him. So turn a page, perhaps in your Bible or on your app. This is 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 7. So Peter there says this, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. This is Peter's charge. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Shepherd the flock of God. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. You can see humility is a key issue there. Uh, Look, I think these are on your study sheet. Look at what elders should do and what elders should not do. So elders should shepherd the flock, exercise oversight. They do so willingly, eagerly, in an exemplary manner with humility. That's the positive side. Elders should not serve the church under compulsion, not for shameful gain. This is the thought of greed not in a domineering fashion, and not in pride. And I'm just going to give you a little bit of a background on leadership and some of the language used here. Elders in Scripture are always plural. Uh, There's no model in the New Testament church for anything but a plural number of men serving as leadership in a local church. That's always the case. In the New Testament, there are several words that are used synonymously. These words are used interchangeably, and they all mean the same thing, the same function. So the term elders, that's what Peter started with. I exhort the elders as a fellow elder. So elders is one word. Overseers is the other. He's got that in the same text, exercising oversight. Uh, Pastors is the same. It's interchangeable. That's just a Latin term for shepherd and shepherds. So elders, overseers, pastors, and shepherds all mean the same thing. It's the same role. You'll see the terms used interchangeably in the New Testament. At Lion Lamb, we've defaulted to the term elders, which I won't go into for now. That's simply the, the term that we use for anyone serving in this role. So Peter articulates, like he did for husbands in the home, What does leadership by elders look like in the local church? And again, we'll break this down by some terms and some phrases. If you go to the first one, he says, shepherd the flock of God. Shepherding in this context usually means teaching. Go to John 21, when Jesus restores Peter. Peter denied him three times. Jesus asked, do you love me three times? Each time he says, feed my sheep, care for my sheep, feed my sheep. 
elders, the church leaders should, the beginning, the middle, and the end of everything, be teaching what God himself has laid down in Scripture. Elders have the unique role of making sure that whatever's being taught in the church is from God's Word. It's backed by God's Word. It's an appropriate explication of God's Word. If you look in 1 Timothy 3, verse 2, elders must be able to teach. 1 Timothy 3 gives the qualifications for elders and then deacons, and the only difference between the two is that elders are able or apt to teach. Otherwise, the characteristics of men in those two groups looks exactly the same. If you look in Acts 6, the apostles were functioning plurally in Acts 6 in the early church as a group of elders. They were apostles, but they were also the first elders in the church at Jerusalem. And they were willing to do anything. They were serving humbly. And so at that stage in the game, they were waiting on tables. They were making sure that elderly widows in the early church were taken care of. They were fed. But they established this second line, if you will, of authority and leadership. And they said, hey, we want you to choose out some men. This is what they're going to look like. And as you read that passage, they sure look like the group of deacons that we'll see identified later in 1 Timothy 3. And they say, because we're going to give ourselves to prayer and to the Word of God. So they, they saw their primary responsibility to teach and to pray, teach the church and pray for the church. The foundation of the church is the gospel, and then it's the rest of Scripture. So elders are supposed to be making sure that the church is taught God's Word. It's also one of the reasons why we invite people all the time to read our Bibles, to meditate in God's Word to memorize God's Word, to make it our own. It's the standard of truth. It's the truth that informs us and frees us. If we don't have that, we're not Christ's church if we're not living by Christ's Word. So shepherding primarily related to teaching. He also says to watch over, uh, watch over the church. This would have the sense of I'm aware of how an individual's doing or I'm aware collectively how the church is doing. We have had multiple series and messages in this church because as elders we sat down and said um, there are ripples going through the church on social media, typically, can you believe this, about elections and politics. And if you can believe this, and everyone in the church doesn't agree on a topic. And so we said we'll teach to that because in overlooking the church and looking over the church we are aware there are things going on we want to specifically speak to and address. So being aware, or an individual, you know, if I ask someone when I meet them, how are you doing? I'm not being a busybody, I don't need more information, but I may want to know how can I pray for you or what's going on, you know, how are you, really, how are you doing? Do you need anything? Is there anything we can do for you? Watching over. Exile leaders serve the church. He says this, I'm going to combine some of this for time's sake. He said, serve willingly, not under compulsion. Serve eagerly, not out of greed. So we could rephrase that and say, elders don't have to serve the church. They get to serve the church. That's the attitude we should have. Elders aren't leading for what they can get, but what they can give. It's primarily a service. We're serving others in Christ's name. And that's not without its own payoff, which we'll get into in the last message next week. But Christ promises what he calls his under-shepherds, that he'll reward them for serving his church. 
So we can say, hey, we served the church selflessly for decades, but at the end, Christ is going to say, I'm going to reward you for that faithful service. You didn't get anything perhaps in time during your service, but it's not that your service will be without reward. Christ promises He will reward that faithful and uh, service to the church. So willingly, not under compulsion, I get to, not I have to. Eagerly, not out of greed, what I can get out of it. He also says in an exemplary fashion, not domineering. And this basically means to display somewhat of the character of Christ. Elders, when he says it as an example, if you go back and look at 1 Timothy 3, and this is something that we focus and communicate to guys we believe are future elders here in the church. Your example starts in your own home. So Paul, the apostle, says in 1 Timothy 3, he said, if a man hasn't led well in his home, how can he be expected to lead well in the bigger home, the bigger family, God's family in the local church? Our example doesn't start as leaders in the church. It starts as leaders in the home. So what's my example? How do other people see my leadership based on how I treat my wife, how I've treated my children in my home? Because that's what we assume will be generated in a larger sphere in the church. What's the example being set at home? Elders are meant to be examples of Christ. And guys, this is, uh, you talk to anybody that uh, leads in Lion and Lamb, uh, we're painfully aware of our deficiencies. You know, 1 Timothy 3, one of the qualifications is above reproach. Well, on a, on a good day, I might say I'm okay, and on a bad day, I might just say I feel like a failure. I shouldn't even be in this role. We're keenly aware of our own foibles and failings. So you talk about being a Christ-like example, but it's with this sense of, and I fail all the time. I think this is a little bit like being a husband or a father. I might fail miserably, but I'm still Kathy's husband. I'm still a parent, a father to my kids. I don't get to just sit down and bugger out. You know what I mean? I've still got to get up and do the do. They're still counting on me, and that's often the case in the church as well. And he says this is not just to the elders. This is church-wide. He says, humbly, not in pride. Uh, humility was Christ's hallmark in the incarnation. Think of Philippians 2. You know, Jesus came from heaven to earth. You know, he became not just a man, but the lowest form of a criminal crucified on a cross. That to be a Christian is to be called to humility. And those who would lead the church are additionally, if you will, called to Christ-like humility because we're supposed to be living out what it looks like for a mature person with the transformation of Christ's likeness into their life, what does that look like? Humility is the hallmark of that. Humility is what God calls us all to, and certainly Christian leaders. A proud elder or a proud Christian is a contradiction in terms. Let me read to you, uh, this is from Matthew 23. Matthew 23, verses 1 through 12, Jesus spoke to his own about leadership. He said this, the, so he's speaking of the leadership in his day, but for the benefit of his disciples. So he said, the scribes and the Pharisees, those are the Jewish leaders of his day, sit on Moses' seat, they're in the place of authority, so do and observe what they tell you, but not the works they do. They preach, but they don't practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. 
This is all hypocritical leadership, isn't it? They do all their deeds to be seen by others, so it's all about impressing others. They make their phylacteries, those are little boxes with Scripture, broad, and their fringes long. Their, their clothing shows how holy they are. They love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and being called rabbi by others. So he says, the leaders that you've known and you've grown up with, they're in this for themselves. And so he says, that's not for you. He turns the table and he says, you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher. You are all brothers. And I love that phrase, you are all brothers. Francis Schaeffer talked about church leaders as simply being older brothers. And I think that's a helpful paradigm that I'm not the father of a family, I'm just an older brother. And as an older brother, I may know some things that my younger siblings don't. I can be a help to them. But it's not because I'm up here and they're down here. I'm just a little further ahead of them on the road of life or transformation. You are all brothers. Call no man father on earth. You have one father in heaven. Don't be called instructors. And you get the picture. Um, Sometimes we aspire to something that's just a title. We want to be honored because we bear a certain title, and that's what they were doing. That's why we've tried to diminish in this church sort of the terminology used to just say we are all brothers, and we've, we're just called. We're a little further ahead, hopefully, in transformation and maturity, uh, but we're not taking on titles that somehow elevate us. Christ is the one we want to elevate. Uh, don't be called instructors. You have one Christ, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. You can see where Peter got his language and the thought and the imagery of leadership. He heard it straight from Jesus. So if we're husbands or elders, leaders in our homes or the church, are we exile leaders representing Christ's interests? So as leaders, in any of the ways that, that we call our sphere, our role of authority or responsibility, do we give Christ a bad name or do others see a bit of Christ-like leadership in us? And guys, if you feel like, uh, yeah, I know I'm called to lead. I don't do so well. I failed time and again. Say one, we just confess our sin, right? We confess our failures and we get up and we get back in the game, one. The other thing is this. None of this is meant to be done by us on our own. The calls we have as Christians for leadership or life in general are always based on the fact that Christ's life is in us. So that I can read Galatians 5 and I can tell you I'm walking by the Spirit of Christ or by my old sinful self simply based on what I see. So if I see failure, if I see pride instead of humility or abuse instead of servant care, I need to confess that as sin, but the secret is not to, not to whip myself, not to abuse myself, it's to walk by the Spirit. It's to say, Jesus, I need more of your life being demonstrated in mine. I want to say no to the old sinful temptations and yes to the leading of the Spirit of Christ in me. It's always about the life of Christ. In the midst of abusive leadership, power-grabbing, self-important, self-serving leadership in the political and civil church and home settings, are we modeling men, exile leadership, the kind of humble service Jesus lived and modeled for us? That's really the question. So if you would stand with me, we're going to read Mark 10. By the way, this was a parallel passage to a uh, Sunday school text Brian had for us this morning. Let's read this together and then the worship group will get us going in song. Jesus called them to him 
and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great